This episode of The Past and the Curious is brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World by Rebecca Boggs Roberts and Lucinda Robb. Are you passionate about a cause you'd like to fight for? We'll take a few tips from the suffragists who led one of the largest and longest movements in American history. A blend of suffragist history and tactics, this eye-opening look at their playbook shows that many of the strategies are still being used today. It's really a great book for young readers. I have read it, and I'm a fan. The Suffragist Playbook is available wherever books are sold. And our thanks to Candlewick Press for the support. Yeah, I, I wish there was a cheese delivery service. Can we... Can we get somebody on that? What's that? We're we're on, aren't we? We're on. Yeah. I always do that. Well, sorry, y'all. Uh, if you didn't guess, uh, this episode made me hungry. This episode, by the way, is episode 52. There is now an episode of The Past and the Curious for every week of the year. So thanks for hanging out with me and being such a great audience of listeners. It's a real gas for me to do. Speaking of gas, there are some gas jokes in this episode, so keep an ear out for that, I guess. Both stories this month are about food fights, but not the kind you're thinking of. These food fights have to do with oysters and cheese and pirates and smelling contests. You know, I'm sure that makes a lot of sense to you now. If it doesn't, well, then it will by the end of the episode. So let's get into it. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're an old listener, welcome back. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. Here we go. It was the last day of February in 1883 when a man known as the Toenail Governor commanded a cannon-equipped steamer as it barged up the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. He was well known, so pirates were on the lookout. When he came upon the anchored pirate sloop Dancing Molly, the crew of three on board rushed to escape before they were captured. This pirate crew, by the way, consisted of three women, a mother and two daughters. The mother took the helm while the daughters unfurled the sails. Catching a soft wind, Dancing Molly cut through the salty bay with the steamer on her tail. They knew that if they could make it to neutral water before being overtaken by the toenail governor, they'd be safe. It was a tight race, and when cannons were fired in a warning to surrender, the women ignored it, continuing their hasty escape. Soon, a stiff breeze picked up and carried them to safety, leaving the big steamer behind in its wake. The chase was celebrated in newspapers from Virginia to Maine. When we think about pirates, our minds may fill with a lot of things. Boats and beards and blunderbusses and booty, perhaps. We all have ideas, be they right or wrong, of treasure maps and pilfered gold buried somewhere safely in the sand. But this story is not about pirates and gold. It's about pirates and oysters, which honestly in the 1880s were pretty close to gold. As far back as we know, and probably a lot farther than that, the Chesapeake Bay was full of oysters. Archaeologists, people who study human history by excavating and analyzing sites and what people left behind there, have found enormous deposits of discarded shells left behind by Virginia's native tribes. These go back more than 2,000 years. 
along with clearly showing that the native people harvested and ate oysters, which are low in calories and high in protein, healthy fats, and vitamins, the digs also reveal other objects that had been left at this site, which the experts used to piece together a clear picture of Native American lives. When the first European ships rounded the outer edge of the Virginia and Maryland Peninsula that creates the bay, they almost couldn't sail their ships into the mouth. I don't know how many oysters you can imagine, but I can imagine an awful lot. And that's probably nothing compared to how many oysters there really were at the time. The bivalve mollusks filled the bay so completely that boats had a hard time passing at low tide. And if you've ever seen the Chesapeake Bay near Virginia Beach or Hampton or Jamestown, Virginia, you'll know that that must have been a lot of oysters. Oysters are filter feeders, which means they feed by drawing water over their gills and eating the particles and plankton that come with it. In addition to their role in the food chain, they play a very important role in cleaning the water. Today, the oyster population can filter the roughly 18 trillion gallons of water in the Chesapeake Bay in about one year. When they were at their greatest population numbers, like when there were so many that they'd block incoming ships, they could filter the same 18 trillion gallons in less than a week. That should show you that there are not as many oysters today as there were before. And this is how we get to the pirates. Well, actually, first we gotta talk about trains really quickly. Oysters were a very common food for people on the coast. They were cheap, plentiful, and to many, the little blubber nuggets between two shells taste really good. But if you were far from the ocean, you'd never know. They would spoil before you could eat them. When the railroad came to the area in the mid-1800s, it finally meant that things could be shipped quickly. Then, when advancements in canning food and refrigeration to keep things cold developed, a new industry was born. People rushed to fill paint-can-sized tins with oysters to ship to eager eaters in Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky and Illinois and beyond. The inland states gobbled them up and kept buying more. They were practically gold. Slimy, slimy gold. Where did most of these oysters come from? Well, the Chesapeake Bay. Pretty quickly, there was an oyster rush to harvest as many oysters as possible. Boats filled the bay, and pretty quickly, the government realized that if they didn't do something, the Chesapeake Bay, which was once boat-cloggingly bulging with bivalves, might be devoid of oysters entirely. In the 1800s, they didn't know what kind of damage that would do to the ecosystem, but they knew it would hurt an industry that kept a lot of people employed. Now, there were two types of oyster people, tongers and dredgers. Tongers were the first ones around. The tongs they used were kind of like two big garden rakes with super long poles attached. They'd usually get oysters from the shallow water, and it might look like they were standing in the boat moving two giant chopsticks, but the rake ends down below would hold on to the shells while leaving the weighty water, mud, and rocks from the bottom. Maybe picture a giant set of salad tongs. Then along came the dreaded dredgers. It's believed that this idea came from up north, where they had all but depleted the oyster population already. Dredgers used huge, heavy nets of iron rings, and these would be sunk into the bottom and pulled through the oyster beds, collecting the oysters, leaving the dirt and water just like the tongs had. But unlike the tongs, the dredge could capture a whole lot of oysters in one pass, and it also severely damaged the beds. And so began the oyster wars. 
Tongers were angry at dredgers for ruining their beds and taking all of the oysters. Dredgers were mad when the government told them that they had to stick to the deep waters, and later they had to stop dredging altogether. They didn't listen, of course, and there were confrontations. They believed that they were free to take as many oysters as they wanted and leave the bottom of the bay in disarray in the process. There were fights, guns fired, people were murdered on the open seas, all for oysters that would be put in a paint can and sent on a train car to who knows where in middle America. No matter what limits the state of Virginia put on the dredgers, it wouldn't stop a thing. Dredgers would head out in the middle of the night to go oystering undetected. In the morning, the tongers would find the waters were all but used up and destroyed. So more violence ensued. And soon the dredgers became known as the oyster pirates. The governor of Virginia, William Cameron, took matters into his own hands and captained a steamer called the Victoria J. Pede. One day in 1882, the Pede and another ship came across seven oyster pirate ships. Like sitting ducks, Cameron had them where he wanted them. He just needed to get close, so he created a ruse. Hitching the other boat to the Pede to look like it was towing the craft somewhere for maintenance, they got close without alerting the pirates, and then sprung the trap. With cannons blazing, the Pede quickly overtook six of the boats, while the other ship he was towing as a decoy blocked the channel for escape. The seventh still managed to make a break for it, and there was a long, valiant chase, which ended in the governor catching up and arresting those pirates too. Once caught, the captain of the ship acted as if nothing had happened, basically saying, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were chasing me. I was just driving my boat, unaware that you were on my tail at a great speed for 35 miles or so. Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't realize this was a chase. Yeah, 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 I did hear some cannon shots. You're right, yeah. But I didn't really think anything of it. Cameron put him in jail. At least for a little bit. Cameron was a hero. Until they all basically got set free with very little punishment. The story behind his new nickname, the Toenail Governor, is kind of complicated and not as good as the nickname is itself, but this is about the time that he got it. And it did have something to do with the oyster pirates he so dramatically caught, ultimately getting away with their crimes with very little punishment. After this, the dredging oyster pirates went wild. So with his popularity plummeting and a smelly new nickname, he took the peed out for another round in February of 1883. This was when he came upon and ultimately lost the chase with the dancing Molly. The women aboard were the wife and daughters of an oyster dredger who was on shore with a few others gathering wood. Rather than wait to be caught, they took off. Even the people who hated oyster dredgers cheered them on. No one was very happy with the toenail governor at this point. So the women would go down in history as the laughing lasses of the dancing Molly. And it would be a thorn in the side of the toenail governor for the rest of his life. By now, 5,800 pirate boats were oystering illegally and violence followed them wherever they went. He finally realized that maybe instead of leading an attack as the sitting governor of a state, he could appeal to Congress and get some money for a fleet of officers who could just make it their jobs, which is what he did. By the time he left office in 1886, oyster piracy was dramatically reduced thanks to the Oyster Navy. Though the illegal harvesting and the violence that came with it continued into the 1920s. The oyster wars were about who had a right to the natural resources in the Chesapeake Bay. 
and the effect that it had when some people took more than their fair share. It also had to do with the government deciding that they had a responsibility to regulate and enforce laws about protecting natural resources so the oysters wouldn't be used to extinction. The Oyster Wars weren't just about the dancing Molly versus the toenail governor, but that was definitely a high point in the drama. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds. Ari, I know you've been waiting, and uh, this is the perfect episode for your bit, so take it away. I'm Ari, and I will talk about the shortest war. In 1896, Zanzibar was colonized by Britain and Germany. The leader of Zanzibar, who liked the British, died, and his cousin, who didn't like the British, took over. The British told the new leader of Zanzibar to stand down. When he didn't, they declared war. They had a stronger military and bombarded the ruler's palace. The war ended 38 minutes after it started, and in a deal, Britain got Zanzibar and Germany got land in South Africa. Again, I am so amazed at how much information you all fit into 30 seconds. Ari, you did a great job. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who have submitted. I've got a bunch of them, but I still want more and I'll still use them. So send them. There is information on the website, thepastandthecurious.com, about how to submit. But really, it's simple. All you need is a voice memo recorder. There's probably one on your phone. And to email it to me. Oh, and you need 30 seconds. And you need a really great story, like Ari's. Thank you. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Okay, you know what to do. Each year, on the Spring Bank holiday, hundreds of people show up at Cooper's Hill near Gloucester, England for a contest. In this contest, someone rolls something down a very steep hill, while dozens of participants race down the hill after it. What is it that they roll down the hill? It's a wheel of cheese. It's a cheese wheel. More specifically, it is a seven to nine pound wheel of double Gloucester cheese. The hill, which is filled with ruts and is about 200 yards long, makes for a dangerous chase. 
Often people tumble head over heels in an effort to be the first person to the bottom and to capture the coveted cheese. I don't recommend trying it at home. Okay, question number two. In the 1950s, George Duvall invented the Unimate, which was the first robotic arm. It would revolutionize how factories made products. Before he worked on that, he worked on a team that experimented with microwaves for the US Army. Out of that sprang another invention, a new kind of vending machine. What did this vending machine sell? It was called the Speedy Weenie, and after you put in your coins, it would heat up and spit out a hot dog. Famously, one of the very first Speedy Weenie machines was installed in New York's Grand Central Station. Many people in the 1940s were afraid of microwave technology, but the Speedy Weenie did a lot to ease their minds and fill their bellies. Your third and final question. What treat was invented in 1905 by 11-year-old Frank Epperson by accident one cold, cold night? According to the story that he would tell as an adult, he left some lemonade on the porch with a stick in the cup. And when he pulled the frozen liquid out by the stick, it was a moment of happy accident. When he was 23, he filed a patent for the chili treat. Originally, he called them Epsicles, but he switched to Popsicles before the patent. There are stories of similar ice pops before Frank, so he likely wasn't the first person, but he did get the patent, and he is the reason Popsicles are familiar to us now. There's nothing quite like cheese. It's a food that's been around for so long that no one is quite sure when or where somebody first ate it. Most likely, thousands of years ago, someone found themselves needing to carry liquid as they journeyed or worked or tended to flocks of animals. In an effort not to waste anything, sometimes people would use the bladder of a slaughtered animal. While it's pretty gross to consider as a drinking vessel, a bladder does do a good job of holding liquid. I mean, yours does it every day, right? But sometimes people would also use the stomach of an animal instead. And the stomach of an animal also holds liquid well. But while doing so, it could also have some things like bacteria, other stuff in it. This wouldn't really do much if the person was carrying a day's worth of water in the stomach bag. But when that person put milk in there, something remarkable happened. There's a good chance cheese was just a happy accident that happened under these circumstances. In the repurposed animal stomach, the milk would curdle, turning it into something sort of like cottage cheese. This new goo would actually keep longer than the original milk would have, which was good. Milk can spoil quickly in the hot sun, so people quickly learned to appreciate the chemical reaction that took place. Soon, someone tried adding salt, straining the curds from the liquid, and even tried letting it age. And this is how nearly every cheese in the world starts. And in the thousands of cheesy years that have happened since, people have added things, used different milks, even aged it in different places. And as a result, we get different varieties like cheddar, Havarti, Gouda, Parmesan, all of the cheeses that you can imagine. And every cheese has people who love it. Even Limburger. Limburger cheese also has plenty of people who detest it, as you will clearly see. 
the reason most people turn up their nose at Limburger cheese is because the recipe calls for a special bacteria to be applied to it as it's aging. Brevibacterium linens, the secret ingredient, is actually found on human skin. It's the bacteria responsible for foot odor. And like many feet, Limburger cheese stinks. Its origins begin in the French-speaking region of Belgium, known as the Duchy of Limburg. And despite the stank, it became a popular food among many German and Swiss immigrants in America. Many of these people settled in Wisconsin, which is basically the only place the cheese is still made in America today. It is, and always has been, a classic case of a food that some people love, and some people love to hate. It was 1935 when a woman in Independence, Iowa, went to Dr. McGrady's office complaining about her sinuses. She couldn't breathe through her nose, and it was hard to work in the day, and it kept her awake at night. That's a total bummer. You know it. I know it. Dr. McGrady knew it, but he didn't really have anything to offer her in the way of nose-unclogging medicine. So instead, he wrote a prescription for Limburger cheese. His thought was that the aroma of the Wisconsin cheese, which many people have compared to gym socks soaked in ammonia, might just do the trick. An order was placed for out-of-state delivery, and somewhere up north, the cheese was wrapped tightly, two layers, and the postmaster of Monroe, Wisconsin, approved the shipment. Easy breezy, stinky cheesy. The postmaster, a man named John Burkhart, was a big fan of Limburger. He had eaten his fair share of the funky fare, so he didn't give it another thought. As soon as it left his sight, he moved on to other things, though the smell probably lingered a bit longer. Once on the delivery truck in Iowa, the cheese had a different effect altogether. It quickly dawned on the unsuspecting mail carrier that something was off in his truck. He sniffed around at first, trying to locate the offending odor. Checked under his own arms. Nope. So he drove on. And it seemed to get worse. He checked the bottom of his shoe. <laughs> no, that wasn't it either. A deeper investigation led him to his mailbag. The smell was coming from one of his deliveries. It was a little block of cheese. The non-stop nostril assault of the Limburger made him so sick that he turned his truck around and went back to the post office. He refused to carry something in his truck that had nearly made him lose his lunch. The postmaster in Independence, Iowa, Warren Miller, trusted his mail carrier, and without much investigation, he sent the cheese back to Wisconsin on the grounds that postal workers wouldn't deal with hazardous material. When the putrid package showed back up in Monroe, the surprised and confused Burkhard took a whiff. It smelled just right, so he put it right back on the next train for Iowa. A few days later, the malodorous mail showed up in Monroe again. The Iowa postmaster had sent it back a second time, saying it smelled terrible and they would not allow it. So don't bother trying to send it again. So Burkhard put it back on a train. But this one was not bound for Independence, Iowa. Instead, it was bound for Washington, D.C. In a letter accompanying the Limburger, he explained the situation and asked for a ruling from the federal postmaster. The employees in Washington probably had a laugh about the situation, and probably some feelings of nausea over the odor, and then all cast their votes. They said it wasn't hazardous, but it certainly didn't smell good. Satisfied with the ruling from the postmasteriest of postmasters, and ferociously proud of Monroe's Limburger, 
He sent a new chunk of cheese with a copy of the letter from the DC postmaster back to Iowa. Warren Miller looked at it, looked at the cheese, and tossed it right back on the train. Return to sender. The Limburger War was on. Stubborn as they might have been, Miller and Burkhard were not belligerent, which is why they agreed to settle their dispute like gentlemen, with a sniffing duel. Burkhard would travel to Iowa with a crew of Wisconsinites and several pounds of Limburger cheese. If Miller didn't retch from the stench when Burkhard uh, cut the cheese, literally, then Burkhard would be allowed to send as much Limburger as he needed, and the postal workers would have no choice but to deliver it. I wonder if anybody thought about the poor stuffy-nosed woman. Did anyone ask how she was doing through all of this? Anyway, Miller agreed to the duel, and the table was set. A crowd of people showed up to the nose duel, scheduled in the lobby of a fancy hotel. As odd as this event was, people were probably eager for any diversion that they could get from the daily news of 1935, which included the Great Depression on the home front and people like Hitler and Mussolini in Europe. And a cheese-sniffing duel was certainly a diversion. Before cutting the cheese, Burkhard, who was sympathetic to the effect that the fragrance might have on a man not from the center of the cheese world, offered Miller a gas mask. Miller declined. He offered him a clothespin to pinch his nostrils together. The poker-faced Miller declined again. And then he made a startling admission. I imagine the conversation went like this. <clears throat> I, uh, I can't smell. I'm sorry, what? I have no sense of smell. But the whole reason I'm here is because you said my cheese smelled so bad that your postal workers won't carry it. That much is true, but I never really smelled it. I just took their word for it. Uh, okay, well, as far as this contest, the deal was if I cut the cheese, and I'm really going to lance into the Slimburger, I cut the cheese and you don't retch, then I win, right? Yeah, that that was the deal. So let me get this straight. You can't smell so you're not going to retch. That's right. I, I can't smell it. So I win. Yeah. Yeah, you win. You can send us your cheese. So why are we here? Guess I kind of got caught up in it. But look around. These people are excited. Figured it would be a good boost for both towns. Yeah, okay. I, I dig that. Well, we're all here, and I got all of this cheese. So what do you say we start cutting it and give everyone a show? Mach schau, mein Freund. Mach schau. Thanks. I appreciate the German. Obviously, that's not how it played out exactly, but Miller's lack of sense of smell was both surprising and made the event ultimately unnecessary. But they did go through the pageantry of cutting cheese and sniffing cheese. The two men also ate Limburger and onion sandwiches for the judge and crowd. But the duel was over before it began. Postmaster Warren of Independence, Iowa, agreed that Monroe could ship Limburger cheese to the town whenever he liked, as long as they kept it properly wrapped. In the fall that year, the residents of Monroe had an idea. In the years before the Great Depression, they held an annual celebration, simply called Cheese Day. There was music, dancing, parades, contests, and of course, cheese. The party had stopped somewhere in the late 1920s, as the general lack of money during the Depression had affected the lives of so many in the area. But with the Limburger War came a new attention to Wisconsin cheese. So they dreamed up a new Cheese Day, 1935 edition. 
Alongside the 50,000 curd nerds having a Gouda time, the guests of honor were Postmaster Warren, Dr. McGrady, and that patient who first walked in with a stuffy nose, the first shots of the Limburger Cheese War. By now, she was breathing easy and sleeping well. I'm sure she would say, sweet dreams are made of cheese. Well, there you go, everybody. Episode 52 is almost in the books. we got a little bit more stuff to do, some Patreon people to thank, and uh, a song at the end. Uh, I, thank you for listening, though. But before we get, get that out of the way, as you might guess, there's more fun planned next month, as there always is. So be ready for that. Stay tuned. Okay, Patreon people, let's do this. Thank you so much. Juniper and Roscoe in Nashville. Hey, that's not far from me. I love Nashville. That's a great place. Juniper and Roscoe, thank you. Liam and Jill. Liam Liam and your mom, Jill. Liam, thank you, Liam. And oh, what about Nora and Everett Stoops? What's up, y'all? Nora and Everett. And also... Oliver and Noor, the brother and sister team. Oliver and Noor, hello and thank you. I'm so glad your ears are out there. Taryn, I want to thank you. If there's someone else that I should thank, then uh, let me know, okay? That also goes for you, Jessica, Jessica Black, because I think you want me to thank somebody else, Who too. Just let me know. I sent you a message. Oh, wait, there's more. Liam and Juliet near St. Louis. Uh, and I understand that there's a little bit of fiddling that goes on in that family. And if you're from St. Louis and you fiddle, you should know about my one of my heroes named John Hartford. I sent you a long message about him. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, the Donati clan, which Don't includes, but clan. probably is not limited to, Nico, Gus, Cass, Mr. B, and Linus, the Donati clan. Oh, wait, this just in. I said last but not least, but they were not the lastest and they were not the leastest. Neither are Henry and Xavier from Pittsburgh. Henry and Xavier, I need to thank you as well. Thank you so much for uh, the kind gesture that you sent my way. And I also need to say hello to Evelyn Levine. Evelyn Lavin Levine. I'm not totally sure how you say it, but I got a great message from your mom. I'm glad you're out there listening. All of you. That goes for all of you. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, I have a Patreon song for the Petrosky family. And it's a fun one. They were inspired by a family motto from another song. And they have a family motto too. So we made a song out of it. Hope you like it. Thanks, gang. I'm Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. And it has been a blast. We'll talk to you soon. You never know unless you go. That's the team Petro motto. You never know unless you go. That's the team at your way. William and Maxwell climbing mountain. All the Petroskis in the woods. You'll never know what you're missing. Give it a shot. Things will be good. You never know unless you Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you in February. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious.